with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to Think Again, a program produced by Borderlands Cooperative. We've been working for social change for almost 26 years. We're broadcasting from the 3CR studio on the lands of the Wurundjeri people, lands that have never been ceded. I'm Jacques Boulet, and again, it's just me without uh, Jennifer, who's having another day off. Today, I'm talking with independent journalist Anthony Levenstein. Welcome to the program, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me. In the midst of the already confusing landscape of comments about Gaza, you may see it as less constructive to bring in yet another voice and another view on the distressing spectacle of that lethal outburst of violence. It is really difficult to gain some critical distance from the adversarial partisanship when commenting on what's going on, let alone trying to gain a deeper understanding of what's behind this bloodthirsty nightmare. Trying to gain a better understanding is stifled on the one hand by accusations of anti-Semitism when commenting on actions by the present Israeli government, or it is stifled by accusations of justifying Western neocolonialism or of Islamophobia when commenting on Hamas historical and recent violent actions. Using terms like occupation and resistance to this occupation are loaded from the onset as historical justifications of rightful possession of Palestinian Israelite lands are reciprocally rejected. And as the hoped for but rather hypothetical two-nation solution is dissipating into a blur of antagonistic rhetoric. That's why I really welcomed journalist Anthony Lubenstein's recent book. The Palestine Laboratory, hoping to learn more of the historical and behind-the-scenes factors and events and gain explanations of what's going on in that land. Let's start with your own story, Anthony, and welcome again. As a journalist and Jew, you have been trying to understand, document and communicate the Israel-Palestine story for almost 20 years. Could you tell us how you have been involved personally and as a journalist in this violent and sad issue? Look, thank you so much for having me, Jacques. Look, you know, one of the things that often I think people, and I'll come to some of your comments um, a bit later maybe, but one of the things I think that often silences people or makes them unwilling to speak out is they think, the situation in the Middle East is complicated. Who am I to say? I've got no involvement. I'm talking about people who maybe who are not Jews or Arabs or Muslims. Who am I to say? I haven't really got a side. I don't want to get involved. As you say, it's, it's such a toxic conversation. I don't want to be accused of anti-Semitism or something else. So I think I, when I, I hear all that, and that's undeniably true, but I think for a lot of people increasingly it is... Very clear what's happening over there. So let me give you a little bit about my background. So I grew up in Melbourne. I live in Sydney now, but I grew up in Melbourne, and I'm a Jewish Australian. I grew up in the 70s, and back then, 
And it's not that dissimilar now for many Jews in the Jewish community. Israel was a quite important part of our lives. It's not like Israel was the centre of my life, it wasn't. But for many Jews, Melbourne has the highest percentage of Holocaust survivors in the world. And I think that really has impacted how many Jewish people, though obviously not all, view Israel and Palestine. And what I mean by that is, in my case, for example, my family, most of my family were killed in the Holocaust uh, in Poland, mostly Auschwitz. The ones who escaped uh, Nazi Europe in 1939 came to wherever gave them a visa, essentially, Australia, Canada. The ones who came here were not rabid Zionists. They were not waving the Israeli flag, nothing like that. But they certainly thought that Israel was a safe haven for us Jews. God forbid something happens again. And for those who don't know, as a Jew, if you can prove that you're Jewish, namely that your mother is Jewish, you can go to Israel and within a few months you can be an Israeli citizen. Now, I'm not an Israeli citizen. I've never done it for political reasons. But I could be, as many Jews can be, and yet Palestinians do not have that same right. And that's the main reason why I never did it. So when I was growing up, I felt increasingly uncomfortable with the fact that there was so much anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian sentiment in the Jewish community. I heard this in my family. I heard this in the wider community. I heard this in my synagogue. Palestinians were othered. There was not really, there were no Palestinians. I mean, I don't recall meeting a Palestinian until in my 20s. So Palestinian lives, the facts of the Israeli occupation were kind of invisible. And But as time went on, I became more and more uncomfortable with what I was hearing, and that led me many years later in the early 2000s when I started being a journalist. I moved up to Sydney from Melbourne. That I started writing about the conflict. I visited Israel-Palestine for the first time in 2005, which was in the process of researching my first book, My Israel Question, which came out in 2006. And... I realized very quickly when I started being very public about my criticisms of Israel and the role of the Israel lobby here, a lobby group that advocates, I would say, very uncritically for Israel and its policies, that if you speak out of line, if you're Jewish or non-Jewish, frankly, you will be criticized, you'll be attacked. I got hate mail, I get death threats. I still have over the years. You get a lot more used to it. So my trajectory, I think, in some ways is finally, is increasingly what a lot of young Jewish people feel. I'm not saying all, many Jews still support Israel, including after, of course, October, the massacres that Hamas committed on October 7. But growing numbers of young Jews here, particularly in the US, are speaking out about what they, in my view, correctly feel is an unbelievably immoral and brutal Israeli occupation of Palestine, and therefore are saying, not in my name. Mm -hmm. That, thank you for that. That's very, very, I think, mixed, brings that personal as well as that structural very well together. Thank you for that. Sure. The, the first three chapters of your book, which for the listeners to know, recently just got to the Walkley, and congratulations for that. Thank you so much. The three first chapters really set the scene in the broadest possible way, especially the third chapter's title is evocative. It's called Preventing an Outbreak of Peace. Could you briefly summarize the global mechanism of warfare maintenance you are describing so that we better understand where Israel's role fits in all of that? So Israel has maintained the longest occupation in modern times. It's over half a century of East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza. And it's really 
for people who don't know, it's an incredibly brutal, ugly, racist occupation where if you're not Jewish, and of course the vast majority, well, people, Palestinians of course are not, they're treated as second-class citizens. And everything from certain areas that Palestinians can't go in the West Bank, home demolitions, increasingly in the last years we've seen settler-led pogroms against Palestinians, uh, olive groves that are maintained by Palestinians that burnt down either by settlers or assisted by soldiers. It's really an incredibly brutal, ugly situation. But during those years, Israel has developed a huge range of tools and technologies to maintain that occupation. And they often test those tools of repression on Palestinians in Palestine, which is bad enough. But what they then do is export that to the world, and they claim it's so-called battle-tested. And I have in the book, as you say, a huge amount of examples um, from pretty much every corner of the globe where some form of Israeli repression is existing, is sold. So in the modern era, I'm talking about spyware that appears on your mobile phone to listen to people's phone calls used by states to silence or monitor dissidents or human rights workers or activists. I'm talking about drones that are being used across the world. I'm talking about the use of facial recognition technology, biometric tools to document and monitor in Palestine, Palestinians, but in other places around the world, other groups, minorities. And so the Palestine Laboratory essentially means that Israel is testing new forms of repression, including, I might add, since October 7. In the last two months, I've regularly seen Israel using new forms of repression, new weapons, which they're testing on Palestinians in Gaza, which are often promoted and discussed on Israeli government social media, which is both for a domestic Israeli and international public, but also to potential foreign buyers. It's an incredibly dark, dystopian reality. And I think the reason my sense is that the book, before October 7, but especially since, has kind of exploded around the world, it's become this global bestseller, I think it's because a lot of people, and the book, of course, doesn't talk about October 7 directly at all, it provides a degree of context and background to what, not just what happened on that horrible day, but also what Israel has been doing in Palestine, especially Gaza, for a long time. So the title of that chapter really, which ties into my other work over the years around how to book and film out called Disaster Capitalism in the last 10 years, which is essentially, that was not about Israel-Palestine, it was about other issues. But the message was quite similar, which was there are huge amounts of people around the world and corporations whose primary goal is to make money for misery. So peace, an outbreak of peace is bad for business because peace means that you cannot sell as many weapons and spyware tools and various other forms of repression. And there are a lot of interests in many countries, Israel, the US, Australia and otherwise, making sure that many, many conflicts around the world continue. Mm. Mm. That sounds very whatever, but uh, I have to admit to you that... uh, Every five pages or so of reading your book, I had to put it down because anger was just growing in me. And uh, yeah. it's just, yeah, it's just quite. And you particularly also talk about the links of that with the US and with the US's warfare kind of thing. Mm. And, 
and uh, so that it, a lot of the money which streams into the country from either the US or you mentioned also the reparation payments of uh, of Germany that actually goes into the preparation of these kinds of things which then get exported. Any other? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was I was just going to say a few words about Germany because it's a really interesting case. I'm an Australian citizen, and people can hear my accent, but I'm also a German citizen. I'm a dual citizen. I have a passport in Germany. And one of the things I discuss in the book, although I've said it elsewhere and I've, I keep on saying it, Germany obviously plays a particularly interesting and key role in Israel. Now, obviously, on the one hand, that's not surprising after the catastrophic Holocaust where six million Jews were killed. Germany has felt for essentially since the end of the Holocaust, a, and Israel, of course, was founded three years after in 1948, has said consistently that they feel a moral obligation to support Israel pretty much uncritically. And that's been the case for many, many years. But how that's manifesting itself now, this is before October 7, but certainly since, is to cleanse their German guilt over what their ancestors did in Europe during the Second World War that's manifesting in essentially making any expression of support for Palestinian or Palestinian rights mm -hmm. almost against the law. It's been an extreme version of peaceful protesters in Germany in the last years supporting Palestinian rights, whether they're Palestinians protesting or Jews or others, being physically beaten by police, mm -hmm. where German officials up to the German leader have regularly said, that we support Israel uncritically, that there's no real space in this country for support of Palestine. And I would argue that that is a complete misunderstanding and bastardization of what the history shows. Mm -hmm. By all means, feel a moral obligation to support Jews because of what you did during the Second World War. Obviously, I have no problem with that. And personally, I would not be a German citizen. If that was not the case, I'm only a German citizen now, by the way, mm -hmm. because Germany, after the war, introduced a law that said if your family, if you were made, a, I mean, my family were leaving in 1939, they had to flee. Germany said they were non-citizens. I mean, of course, it was nonsense. They were still German, but the Nazi regime didn't recognize them as such. After the war, Germany allowed Jews to have their citizenships reinstated, essentially. And for decades and decades, the majority of Jews around the world didn't do this because their view was basically, screw Germany for what you did to us, and I understand that. But in the last 20 years, there's been large numbers of Jews, mostly the kids and grandkids of those Jews who suffered during the Second World War, have been able to reclaim that citizenship, and I'm one of those people. So I'm very happy to be able to have a German passport. But I am deeply ashamed and angered by how Germany has misread its moral moral culpability for the Holocaust by mm -hmm. demonising Palestinians and saying that our role has to be complete 110% support of Israel, despite what it does, regardless mm -hmm. of the crimes it commits in Palestine. Uh, thanks for that. Uh clarification really because we have great difficulty uh, making distinctions between anti-Semitism, anti-Jewism, anti-Zionism and anti-Israelism and so that's really an important kind of an in, in. let's just move on uh, rather than have a bit of music which we usually do
Yeah. You're listening to Think Again on 3CR Radio, 855am on your dial, and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Today I'm talking with independent journalist Anthony Lewenstein about Israel and Palestine, based on his just-published and awarded book, uh, The Palestine Laboratory. Anthony has enlightened us about the background to the decades-long crisis so as to better understand the present. So, Anthony, more specifically to Israel and Palestine and the ways in which this murderous form of warfare capitalism plays out in their case, the subtitle of your book expresses it well. And I, I, I cite it, I quote it, how Israel exports the technology of occupation around the world. And chapter 5's title, The Enduring Appeal of Israel's Domination. Could you summarize this for us? Sure. You know, one of the things I think that a lot of people may be listening might say, how would there be an export business for the most repressive form of occupation? And what I show in the book is really how what Israel is selling, apart from, as I said before, the actual tools of repression, um, as in physical hardware of repression that they're using in Palestine, it's also exporting an idea. And that idea really is the concept that I call in the book concept of getting away with it. And when I say getting away with it, I mean there are large numbers of countries around the world, democracies and dictatorships, that look to Israel as a model. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that is a model of saying two things. Various other countries will say, we also have our minorities that we don't like, we want to repress. We also don't want to give comfort to journalists and dissidents and human rights activists and critical lawyers. We want to find ways to repress them. Israel provides the tools and technologies to be able to do so and also provides the the instruction of what getting away with it actually means. Israel has essentially global impunity. Over half a century, in fact, more than that, there's been no real accountability for anything Israel has done, because the vast bulk of the West supports it, namely, of course, the US and other states too, including here in Australia. And that's come out also very clearly after October 7. And many, many other nations, as I discussed in the book, have come to Israel and really asked for advice on how to do the similar things that what Israel is doing in Palestine. Let me give you one concrete example. So India is the world's biggest country now, world's biggest population, world's biggest self-described democracy, and yet it's increasingly becoming a Hindu fundamentalist state under Prime Minister Modi, who's been in power now for nearly 10 years. And India is doing what it's doing for its own reasons. It's not doing it because of Israel, of course. But what is increasingly happening is that India and Israel have become remarkably good friends. And that's important because I discuss extensively in the book why that is, that there is an alliance of ethno-nationalist states. Israel, of course, is a Jewish supremacist state where if you're not Jewish, you're discriminated against. And India is similarly a Hindu nationalist state where if you are, say, Muslim, and there's about 200 million Muslims in India, you are actively discriminated against. And India is getting not just inspiration from Israel because the Indian officials actually say so, including Modi, but also getting tools of repression. India uses huge amounts of Israeli spyware to go after dissidents and critics against the Modi regime. And the danger to that is that when you have a nation of India's size, 1.5 or so billion population, 
very close now to the US and Australia because they're not China. And yet India is transforming into an incredibly brutal, in my view, not just my view, but many other people's view, fundamentalist state. It's important to know where they're getting their inspiration from. So, for example, in the last years, as India is increasingly colonising Kashmir in the north of the country, Indian officials are openly saying, we're getting inspired by what Israel is doing in Palestine. Now, India is going to do what India is going to do, of course. But they are getting inspiration from a regime which believes in colonising a territory. So that therefore means they're bringing in huge amounts of Hindu Hindus from the south to try to colonise and break up major, Muslim-majority parts of Kashmir, just like what Israel is doing in the West Bank, by bringing in huge amounts of Israeli settlers to break up any kind of contiguous territory for Palestinians in Palestine. Right. So... That's, I guess, what I'm talking about. Now, lots of other examples. India is, in some ways, one of the more prominent ones. But I think it's people need to be aware that these are the kind of global alliances that are existing, and they're deepening. And mm-hmm. Israel, I think, is building a loose global coalition of repressive states that maybe sometimes, not in, not in India's case, but in some cases, might be critical of what Israel is doing in Palestine. But as they often say, Look to what countries do, not what they say. Indeed. What matters is that. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, are they buying Israeli weapons? Are they buying Israeli defence equipment? Are they buying Israeli spyware? Mm-hmm. That's what matters in the end. Exactly. So from the global straight into people's ears, because you also talk about the effects of Israel's contribution to global surveillance by describing mm-hmm. how their electronic developments end up in your own phones. Could you say a little bit more about that? So some listeners may have heard of this um, tool called Pegasus. Pegasus is a spyware tool that is founded by this Israeli company called NSO Group. They've been around for about 15 or so years. And Pegasus essentially is a tool that can be installed on your smartphone, so whether you have an iPhone or an Android. Years ago, it used to require... You would get maybe a strange text message with a strange link. You might click on it doesn't go anywhere, you forget about it, you move on. That click infects your phone. These days, a tool only requires a government, police force, intelligence service in various countries. All they need is your phone number. And Pegasus has been sold to huge numbers of nations. We don't know the exact number, but probably close to 100. And there are various other Israeli spyware tools that are being sold that aren't just... um, that aren't just Pegasus, which are less well-known. And the impact of that has been devastating. This is not a tool that directly kills someone. It's not a weapon of death directly. But what it does do is it makes, and I feature in the book lots of people I interviewed who were spied on, essentially, uh, a human rights lawyer in India, a wife of a murdered journalist in Mexico, an activist in Togo in Africa who had to flee the country due to threats to her life. All these people are talking about how Israeli spyware is being installed on activist phones, which allows these repressive regimes ways to break up critical networks or spy on their conversations. So people need to understand, if your phone is infected and there's no no real way to find that out without it being forensically checked, all the contents of your phone is taken, meaning photos, videos, 
text messages, email. And even if your phone is switched off, the camera and microphone can be switched on remotely to be used against you. So essentially your phone becomes a weapon against you. Mm. It's pretty remarkable and scary. And so therefore there is this, Israel has been using spyware as a real diplomatic tool. So let me briefly explain what that means. In the last 10 years, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, and often the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence services, will go to countries that don't often have relations with Israel, and they essentially dangle these tools as a carrot. They say, we'll sell you this amazingly powerful tool. You can use it on anyone you want. And in return, we would like, for example, you to vote with us in certain ways at the UN or other international forums. And I show in the book you can, you can sort of document country by country, from India to Hungary, from Rwanda to others, that are meeting Netanyahu, the leaders, seeing these various people, and then very soon these tools are ending up on the phones of dissidents in these countries. Mm. A clear connection. Mm. So it's really disturbing. At the moment, just finally, there's no global regulation because ultimately no country right now wants to regulate this. Every country wants access to these very, very powerful tools. So until there's regulation these problems will keep on happening. Exactly. We are slowly running out of time, or quickly actually running out of time. Just your thoughts about the Gaza disaster, Anthony. Against the historical and military, industrial and political economic background you have sketched, what is your considered opinion about this tragedy? Just in two, three minutes. Yeah, look, what's happening in the last two months is really kind of unprecedented you know people often overuse that word but it actually is true pretty much in the entire history of this conflict and it's been going on israel's been around for 75 years but the conflict's been going on for over 100 really between jews and palestinians this is kind of one of those moments which mm -hmm. is paradigm shifting and for all the wrong reasons look obviously the hamas attacks on october 7 to me were unconscionable brutal illegitimate and illegal completely and utterly the Israeli response to that in the last two months has been utterly indiscriminate, brutal, committing vast war crimes on an unprecedented scale. I mean, some listeners will have read that the amount of bombing and destruction that Israel has committed has been compared to America, compared to the Allies bombing Germany at the end of World War II. Okay. No, it's that level of destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been probably anywhere between seventeen to 20,000 Palestinians killed, the vast majority of whom are civilians. Vast parts of Gaza are uninhabitable. And I have friends in Gaza uh, who are at the moment alive, as far as I'm aware, but their homes have been destroyed. They are living essentially as refugees in their own territory. It's an absolutely horrific situation. And what I worry is that the so-called long-term end game here, if you can call it that, of Israel, is to either forcibly remove Palestinians to neighbouring states, to essentially bribe Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon and others, to take as many Palestinians as possible. And if that's not possible to make Palestinian lives in Gaza utterly intolerable, sort of indefinite tent cities, which of course none of this, none of this will make Israeli lives safer. As I often say, exactly. Israeli lives will never be safe as long as Palestinian lives are not safe. And mm -hmm. what's happening in Gaza, and for that matter, a mass explosion in violence in the West Bank is making all that worse as well. So we're in a really precarious position at the moment to have the vast bulk of the Western world essentially not just encouraging Israel, but essentially giving them carte blanche to do so will have massive global ramifications in the mm -hmm. year. So it's a really, really dark moment. Yeah. Oh dear.
That's a very sad and dangerous ending, really. But thank you so much, Anthony, for, pleasure, share, for sharing your thoughts and, I would say, your feelings about all of this, because it must be quite disastrous for someone who believed to quite a degree in Israel and in the Jewish case. So, yes. cause, I should say. Yes. So, thank you, no, so, thank you. Thank you so much. And we will put the reference to your book on the web, on our web page, and uh, there will be other references as well, like the ones you suggested in some of the emails you have been sending me afterwards. And we will put those as well on the web page. Especially, therefore, also to balance some of the totally pro-Israel mainstream media reportage. Thank you again. Thanks so much. The community announcement just will be today referring people to uh, supporting this uh, radio station by buying some wine for the end of year kind of of uh, things. <laughs> and to uh, particularly continue to support the station. Thanks so much for listening to Think Again on 3CR Community Radio with Jacques Boulet and Anthony Leuvenstein. I, if you want to send us a message or ask about anything from today's programme, you can email Borderlands. Uh, borderlands at, uh, the email address is borders at borderlands.org.au. Just put Think Again in the subject line. Our programs are available at podcast via your preferred pod, uh, podcast app and on the 3CR website on 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.